at this point you're going to need a Bible. So if you can see one in front of you, it will be worth uh, taking up. And we're going to read from God's Word together. We're going to Matthew chapter 12, which is page 977, I think, in your red Bibles in front of you. But it is useful for you to follow along. I find it easier to concentrate if I'm reading and not just listening. But also it's important that you are uh, making sure that what I say is not just my own message, my own words, but this is God's word who speaks to us. So Matthew chapter 12, we're focusing on verses 15 to 21, but we're going to read from verse 9 just to give us the flow of this part of Jesus' life. So Matthew chapter 12, and we'll start at verse 9. Going on from that place, he, that is Jesus, went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they, that is the Pharisees, the religious leaders, asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Are you familiar with the phrase, cold turkey? I'll take your overwhelming silence as indifference. Uh, Cold turkey, some of you will be conjuring up thoughts of Boxing Day and... Uh, getting that leftover Christmas roast and putting in a nice thick slab of Warburton's. And tur- turkey's one of those things that does taste better on day two, doesn't it? It's like pizza for breakfast. But um, cold turkey is actually a phrase that is used to refer to the actions of a person who is uh, giving up a, a habit or an addiction. But rather than giving it up over a series of time with gradual reduction or gradual replacement, to Go cold turkey is to give it up in a one all at once, suddenly. So, for example, going cold turkey would be uh, smoking 40 cigarettes a day for 40 years and then overnight completely giving up. That is going cold turkey. Now, it can be very successful. It can work. But with certain uh, drugs, going cold turkey can leave unbearable withdrawal symptoms. Some that can even be fatal. So with drugs like heroin, or even with some serious alcohol addictions, going cold turkey can put massive 
pressure and stress on the heart that it can lead to death. This abrupt discontinuation brings with it sudden and fatal withdrawal symptoms. Look with me at verse 15 of Matthew 12. We read, Jesus withdraws. Those people who have been following Jesus have a kind of cold turkey experience as their following of Jesus is suddenly discontinued. He suddenly leaves, he withdraws. And Matthew casts us as the reader down into one of the real troughs of his gospel. This Jesus who we've been following from infancy, who we've seen raise the dead and calm the storm, now becomes the major subject of the plotline's murder story. And from the highlight of last week, remember Jesus stood open-armed and he proclaimed, Come to me, he said. Well, now the roller coaster of the gospel thrusts us down into this valley of rejection where Jesus withdraws. From invitation to withdrawal. From announcement to silence. complete silence. Do you see that? That's why he quotes Isaiah. He says, he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the street. From announcement to silence. I wonder how you take that silence. For some of you, it will be a welcome silence. Work would be such a better place if that Christian just stopped bugging me with this Jesus guy and stopped dragging me along to their church service. Life would be so much better if Jesus withdrew and stopped nagging my conscience. Society would be a better place if the bigoted voice of Christianity would stop sticking its oar in. It's a thankful withdrawal. It's a a welcome silence as Jesus leaves. If that is you, that is a welcome silence for you. Matthew speaks and he, he actually warns you. He, he brings this voice of Isaiah, this Old Testament prophet, as backup. And he inserts this MP3 of Isaiah's voice. And he sings along with it. And he says, be warned. If you go cold turkey with Jesus, there are fatal withdrawal symptoms. Those who reject this Jesus are left with the potential of these fatal Symptoms, And so what Matthew does is he includes these description of Jesus, this servant. He's over elaborate with his words in some ways. He only needs to quote verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice. That's the point. But Matthew paints this picture of the servant to you. And he says, do you see his beauty? He paints this portrait of great light where you see, see his compassion, see his mercy, see his success, see his justice. And he paints that great picture of light that you may see the darkness that you are left when he withdraws. It's as if he holds out to you and reveals this sweetness of Jesus' character so that you may taste the sourness that is left in your mouth when Jesus walks away, when his voice goes quiet. Matthew and Isaiah are determined. They, are, they, cannot, they do not want you to miss the point that if Jesus withdraws, 
If you go cold turkey with Jesus, there are fatal withdrawal symptoms. Well, we're going to look at two symptoms tonight. One from the voice of Isaiah, one from the voice of Matthew. And see, what are these fatal withdrawal symptoms? Well, here's number one. He says, Isaiah says to you, Behold the impotence of your idols. Behold the powerlessness of your idols. Now, maybe the word idol conjures up for you images of primitive people bowing down to statues. Now, whereas that still happens across the world today, for us, our idols are probably more subtle but just as real. You see, when you reject Jesus, it will not just be that you have turned away from him, but you will have turned to something else. And when we turn to something else, we normally will take something that is good and we will make that into the ultimate thing, the one thing that we live for. could be anything. I wonder what it is for you. What have you turned to? Ask yourself, where do I find my significance in life? Where do I find my security? Where do I seek safety? What do I dream about? What fills my imagination? What am I most anxious about? You look there, that's probably the thing that you have put in the ultimate place. How would you answer the question, life would not be worth living if I lost that? See, Isaiah wants to confront you with this contrast giving you a picture of the servant, but then showing you the impotence, the powerlessness of your idols. He's very deliberate in the words he uses. We read them at the start of the service. Isaiah says to these idols, he said, Behold, note that word, Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Then he speaks to the people who are worshipping these idols. He uses the same word. Behold, he says, they are a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Then he says, behold my servant. Do you see the intentional contrast? Behold your idols. Behold your idols. Behold my servant. He wants to show you the darkness that you are left in the idols that you are left to, the powerless idols that you are left to when Jesus walks away. He says they are worthless, less than nothing, a delusion. Their works are nothing, being an empty wind. Let's think about what some of our idols might be. For some of us, the good thing that we make into an ultimate thing could be love, a relationship. Maybe it's the commitment that it brings. Maybe the sex that it promises. But we turn to a relationship of love for everything. To rescue us from meaninglessness or a sense of loneliness. But love can be a very cruel master. When you make it the ultimate thing, some of us in this room will testify to the fact that it brings much hurt much disillusionment, much self-criticism, even abuse as promises fail and excitement fades and tensions rise. When you make a relationship or when you make love the ultimate thing, you are setting yourself up for a fall because you're putting it in a place that it was never meant to 
holds. That person that you long for, that husband that you're married to, that girlfriend that you love, you make them into the ultimate thing, they'll only let you down. See, behold the impotence of your idols. We, we live in a society where thousands upon thousands of women are led to depression and eating disorders because they are enslaved to this obsessive concern over body image because they long for that guy. Or there's thousands upon thousands of men who are driven to a pornography addiction in that lonely world because they long for that relationship. But behold the impotence of this idol. For others, it may be money that we put in that ultimate place. All our identity comes from money. All our worth comes from our financial wealth. And all our problems will be solved if we just had another zero on the end of our paycheck. Wouldn't that be good? But money is also no comforting master. It enslaves us. It ensnares us so that we bow to its every command. Every thought is determined by this money God's. And it enslaves us. And sometimes we can even perform a kind of religious, idolatrous child sacrifice as we sacrifice our kids for the sake of our career or for that paycheck. And what if it goes? What if the money leaves us? Well, we're left with no worth, no, no friends potentially, no influence, no identity. It's no surprise that over the last few years of economic slump that our headlines have been filled with the phrase credit crunch suicides. As bankers who have put all their investment, all their love, all their security and money and then when it goes, well, life is not worth living when I lose my money. Behold the impotence of this idol. For others of us, maybe the thing we make the ultimate thing is fame. Not necessarily worldwide acclaim, but maybe just acceptance in the family. Maybe just approval in the workplace. Um, We're scared of a kind of mediocrity, scared of being normal. And we long for that self-confidence. But again, fame can be a very unforgiving boss, a cruel master. It leaves us bitter towards people who we deem more popular than ourselves. It leads us to weave this web of lies so we become a kind of fantasy person. We live under this paper-thin superficiality. And we're continually in the hands of the changing opinion of others. Do you see the impotence of this idol? It leaves you beaten and bruised. Leaves you like a broken reed or a smoldering wick. And so when people elevate fame, we get people like Susan Boyle who are thrust into rehab if they get fame too quickly. Do you see what it does? Do you see the impotence of this idol? And so Isaiah says to you, Behold, see this. It does nothing to help you. It gives you no hope. It offers you no help. And there there is no comforts and so he starts to paint this dark background do you see the cold turkey of rejecting Jesus do you see what you're left to when Jesus walks away the impotence of your idols the 
powerlessness of your idols. Well, there's a second one. Matthew brings in a, a second fatal symptom of withdrawal. And Matthew wants to say to us, not behold your idols, but he wants to say, behold the evil of man's heart. Behold the evil of man's heart. In Matthew, you're not surrounded by idols, but the context of Matthew is the Pharisees. You saw that as we read some of the story. Surrounded by these guys who were the religious leaders of their day. They were popular guys. They were known for being uh, good in terms of their morals. They were always engaged in good causes in society. They were vigorous in their, uh, their uh, religious obedience, and they had great familiarity with the Bible. But when it comes down to it, this commendable quaint exterior was only a smokescreen. And behind that was veiled this ego-boosting, self-promoting, pride-tickling reality of these men who were actually very evil at heart. See, this afternoon, I had entitled this point, Behold the Evil of Man's Religion. But actually, it's not the religion that is evil. It's the men's hearts, Matthew tells us. Religion, was, the religion wasn't intrinsically bad in that they were teaching God's word, albeit wrongly. But here were these men who were using religion as an instrument through which their evilness was expressed. And Matthew wants to say, behold, the evil of men's hearts. I mean, have a look at their evilness. Look at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 12, if you've still got your Bible open. We read, At that time Jesus went through the cornfields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some ears of corn and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Behold the evilness of man's heart that will not even pity you when you're hungry. Have a look at verse Nine now in chapter 12. We read this earlier. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now go down to verse 13. Then Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill him. Do you see the evilness of man's heart here? Behold, it will not even pity you when you are disabled. Do you see the evilness of man's heart that when confronted with one who can really restore the needy, what do they do? They go out and they plot that they might kill him. When you are left When Jesus withdraws into the evilness of men's heart, that is not a good place to be, is it? You see, here are men who are so concerned with self, so absorbed with self-confidence, that when it comes to you, they would rather neglect love and mercy and justice and forgiveness. Here are men so absorbed with evil that when the perfect one comes, the one who never did any wrong, their first reaction is to plot how they might crucify him and nail him to a tree. And so Matthew continues to paint this picture 
this dark background where he says, Behold, the evil of men's hearts. That this is what you are left to when Jesus withdraws. I mean, you don't have to look far to see history screaming out to us of men who have used the instrument of religion to um, perform great evil. But even beyond religion, you don't have to look far to see the evilness of men's hearts. We live in a world where the numbers 9-11 and 7-7 mean a great deal to us. We live in a world where the names like Damalola Taylor and Madeleine McCann are well known to us. We live in a world where old age and infirmity is seen as worthlessness, as euthanasia abounds. And we live in a world even that sees unwanted pregnancies, unwanted babies as an inconvenience to be aborted. Do you see the evilness of men's hearts? That this is what we are left to when Jesus withdraws. There is no comfort here. What can religion do for a hungry disciple? What can an idol do to a man with a shriveled hand? Nothing. Do you see the fatal consequences when Jesus withdraws? Do you see the fatal consequences of going cold turkey with Jesus? And so we have Isaiah and Matthew singing in harmony this sobering song that says to you, Behold your idols. Behold the evil of man's hearts. And they, they let you taste this sourness only that it might be one half of the context, one half of the contrast. See, the darkness is so that we might see the light. The sourness is so that we might see the sweetness. And so now here, Matthew, as he says to you, yes, behold your idols. Yes, behold the evilness of your heart. But please, see the servants. Matthew pulls back the curtains. He unveils the sunrise as he says, see the superiority of this servant. Look down at these verses. Jesus is a servant. He is not impotent. He's not powerless like your idols, but he comes as one chosen by, commissioned by, loved by the creator gods. He comes with all the authority of heaven and earth. He comes as the one who is empowered by the very spirit of God's. And his great authority is matched by the task that he is given to do. He's no local celebrity. He's no local hero, is he? He is the one who will bring justice to the ends of the earth. Justice even to the Gentiles. And justice here isn't just some humanly devised uh, kind of redistribution of goods. This is God's perfect life-giving reality where idols are removed and man's evil heart is removed and God is restored in the ultimate place in perfect relationship with his creation and his creatures. Here is a servant who will bring this justice. See the superiority of this servant who is not only infinitely powerful but he is also willing amazingly willing. There's none of the evilness of heart that came with the Pharisees. None of the uh, kind of looking down on the world as if they were unworthy plebs. 
But his manner is intrinsic to his title. What is he called? He is called the servant. Your idols will make a servant out of you. They will demand your money, demand your time, demand your emotions. Religion will make a servant out of you, demanding observation, demanding obedience, demanding rituals. What does Jesus do? He doesn't make you a servant. He serves you. He is called the servant with immense sympathy and mighty tenderness. And he serves you when no one else will. He says, I am the one who will a bruised reed I will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. There's nothing quite so weak as a bruised bit of grass, is there? Nothing quite so worthless as a smoldering candle. Imagine life for a moment, if you can, as a bruised bit of grass. It's kind of a precarious existence. You're just there. And you see a bee flying towards you and you think, if that bee so much as brushes me, I'm a goner. Or think of life as a smoldering candle. You're there on a table and you see even a, an infant child close to you and you think, if that child so much as breathes, I'm gone. Do you see the precarious existence, the, the worthlessness of these things? No one would give a snap for a bruised piece of grass or a smoldering candle. Common sense would say, get rid of them, replace them. But what does Jesus do? No. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Now there's no doubt that there are some here tonight who are very aware of their own fragility. Some who are feeling battered and bruised, whether it's from ill health, whether it's from bereavement. We've got two funerals in the church this week. Life leaves us sometimes feeling battered and bruised. Maybe some of us feel like a smoldering wick. The empty promises of idolatry leave us black and blue. Well, here Jesus, he's not like the world which casts worthless things aside. Even these things he mends, he fans into flame, he nurtures. But I also have no doubt that there are some here this evening who they ridicule this. <laughs> I'm not a I'm not a smoldering wick. I am master of my own universe. I am captain of my own ship. I am determiner of my own luck. I am king of my castle. Well, Matthew and Isaiah both warn you again to say that, well, actually, that is not necessarily the case. I mean, even, even life generally will proclaim to you that you are not completely in control. Think about 95% of your existence is completely out with your hands. You had nothing to do with the continent on which you were born, the parents you were born to, the childhood environment you grew up in, the uh, things that you just happened to be good at that were passed down through your gene pool. Why is it that you just happened to be born in this country and not in Pakistan at this moment? Life is wildly out of our control. We're tossed by it. But Matthew and Isaiah want to push that a step further as well. They want to say to you that actually you are in great danger. You actually ought to see yourself as a smoldering wick. You ought to see yourself as a bruised reed. 
They want to say to you, your idolatry is not just self-defeating, but it is God-rejecting. Your idolatry is not a neutral thing. Turning from Jesus is not neutral, but it is evil. And they proclaim to you saying, you have turned from these things away from God. And therefore you deserve justice. And justice here is punishment. When we reject God, we deserve to be rejected by him. You see, we ought to see ourselves as broken reeds, tottering over the precipice of eternity, deserving of God breaking us. We ought to see ourselves as smoldering candles, just smoldering on the edge of an eternal gust that we deserve to be snuffed out. See, in this case, your idols cannot save you. Religion will not help you. This is something you deserve and something that we cannot escape. But they're equally equally eager to show you well, see the superiority of your Savior. See the superiority of this servant. In his great power and authority, he also comes with extraordinary sympathy, mighty tenderness. And he says, even to a deservingly bruised reed, evenly to a deservingly smoldering wick, I will mend, I will restore, I will fan into flame." And so this Jesus came as the humble one who was rejected. His disciples always wanted him to go for that fame, that money, that popularity. They were saying, Jesus, when are you going to stop fraternizing with these simple folk? When are you going to leave behind the broken reeds? When are you going to take that TV show? When are you going to start networking? When are you going to take power? Jesus says, no, I've come as a humble servant. I've come to serve. And I walk a road which roads to the cross. You see, justice for me ought to mean that I am the one who is broken and snuffed out. But Jesus comes as the one who is not only bruised with a crown of thorns, but he is broken in death on the cross. He is not only the one who is left smoldering as he is beaten and whipped, but he is the one who is snuffed out, breathing his final breath on the cross. And he is broken so that I might be restored. He is snuffed out so that I might be fanned into flame. He serves me as a servant by satisfying the justice of God. He dies in my place so that he might serve to me salvation. And then three days later he rises. And he says, justice satisfied. Job done death defeated, hope assured. Do you see the superiority of this servant? He does for you what no idol can and he does to you what your heart does not deserve. And he gives us a justice that otherwise we could never have to join in that life-giving reality of a relationship with God as the ultimate creator of heavens and earth. Do not reject this servant. Do not let him withdraw from you. Do you see verse 15? 
Jesus withdraw. But you see what many people do? They follow him and he heals them. Be like that crowd. Do not let this cold turkey experience happen to you. But follow this Jesus as the only one who can recover that broken reed and fan into flame the smoldering wicks that we are. Let's pray.